0: So, um, wanting to continue a little bit uh, from yesterday and filling out this map of uh, where practice may be heading, uh, where pa- practice possibly can uh, head. <coughs> and uh, just reflecting as I was lighting the candle, um, our capacity for love. Our capacity to give has everything to do with our fearlessness, our ability to be fearless. And that fearlessness rests on our seeing emptiness. Or rather, our seeing of emptiness is something that profoundly uh, enlarges our capacity for fearlessness. When there's fearlessness, there's more capacity to give. And I'm saying that partly because... uh, It may seem, I I don't know, it may seem as we get into the deeper regions here, it may seem that it's a bit abstract, it may seem that it's a bit like some very kind of microscopic surgery uh, on consciousness, Um, but it's all in the service of that freedom, of that fearlessness, which is in the service of that capacity to give. So I hope it doesn't sound abstract. I hope that you can get a sense of the the, the beauty of where uh, of, of where this is leading. Um, and so again, everything I said uh, yesterday at the beginning applies today. No no pressure uh, in these talks. Kind of just listening and filing it for later, and um, being interested, etc. No pressure, but not underestimating what is actually possible for us. So everything that I'm talking about is possible, to see, possible to work with in meditation, possible to realize. What I want to go into tonight is kind of follows on, as I said from yesterday. And uh, both John and I have talked already about dependent origination in uh, different ways. And I want to say more about dependent origination. Dependent origination is a very interesting teaching because, partly because, uh, and I think I threw this out at one point, it can be investigated at a number of different levels. So we can uh, investigate at a kind of everyday level, more and more, more and more, more subtle, and so. Uh, There's the level, very, very useful, of of looking at dependent origination. That's about the ego becoming, the self becoming, this or that, in the future, uh, etc. About our psychological identities, about um, the way that our perceptions are shaped by our habitual patterns of mind uh, coming from the past, and the shape, the perception of the situation, what we want to become, etc. And that kind of habit habit patterns, the way they influence uh, the sense we have of a situation or, or, or event, and the way the self then uh, <coughs> arises dependent on that perception and, and together. And I want to take it uh, kind of another level down. And uh, in this talk, if it's not, it is too ambitious, but I want to talk about time and uh, Finish talking about awareness, and um, the, particularly talk about the first four links of dependent arising. So that's a lot for one talk. We'll see what we get to, but there's a reason for putting those together because they're all actually they're all uh, linked. They're all dependent. Let's start with time. And we've touched on this in question answers uh, already. <clears throat> The intuitive sense that we have of time, most of the time, is that uh, it appears to us as if time has a kind of independent existence. It's almost as if time is uh, a container for events to unfold in. Uh, It's as if uh, someone called it once a vessel of existence. Time kind of goes on and different things happen in time, or they don't happen, But time kind of unfolds uh, independently and uh, in that unfolding of this vessel, uh, different things come into being, go out of being, etc. And that's the kind of, we may intellectualize it or not, but that's the kind of, for the most part, that's the sort of intuitive sense of time that we have. Of time having an inherent existence, an independent existence, and trundling along no matter what. So we've talked a lot in terms uh, of dependent arising, in terms of clinging, clinging, and we've seen through the practices that we've been doing, what happens when I cling less? What happens when the level of clinging in the being goes down? Well, and you may have noticed this on this retreat, when there's less clinging, what can we say, Uh, the time sense sometimes, becomes less prominent. It's just less of a sort of uh, in-your-face kind of present thing. Does anyone notice this? Yeah, good. So already, that's another factor. We've had a whole list of of aspects of our existence that turn out to be dependent on clinging and kind of decrease their appearance, their prominence, dependent on uh, releasing clinging. Well, Getting very suspicious that time might be one of those things too, and we can look. Uh, for instance, you're sitting and meditate. Well, do you have bells in here anymore? You, you, you don't have bells for yeah. sitting. Okay. Well, if you in <laughs> when we light the candles in okay. the morning, and- but not yeah. for sittings. Well, if you remember back to those <laughs> old days when there used to be bells... Well, there were bells here until this morning. The Zen folks had bells. For, for timing your sittings. I'm talking about in a sitting. Okay. Um, if you remember back to that, uh, and, and this sense sometimes when it's difficult... And there's, when is the bell gonna ring? When is the bell gonna ring? When has the teacher fallen asleep? Well, they <laughs> re- <laughs> what's happening? And time, because of clinging, because there's pain or restlessness, whatever, there's clinging in relation to that. And time is so prominent in consciousness that uh, it, time is, is in your face. Okay? It's very, very present, very prominent. We say time is, uh, <coughs> You know, more perceptible, more solid, give more, more sense of substantiality. Similarly, if you're queuing for something, and maybe uh, uh, you're queuing for food, and, uh, and you're really hungry, maybe you're queuing to buy something in the Christmas sa- sales, or whatever. <laughs> um, whatever it is, queuing, and the sense of, um, or just queuing in the post office to get something done, and get it out of the way. So it could be, could be wanting something pleasant, wanting to get rid of something unpleasant that the cue is for. But again, in that, in the clinging that's present, time is given, uh, it feels like it has more prominence, more substance. right? Uh, if there's something in, in, in the upcoming future that you're dreading, something that you've got to do, you've got to perform something or present something. And again, uh, there's clinging in relation to this, Imagine thing. Time takes on such a heavy, uh, palpable substantiality when the dreading, when the clinging, is very strong. Now, if we go, so those are everyday, everyday kind of examples, in and out of meditation, in meditation, <coughs> uh, whichever or many of the practices we've pointed out, uh, been developing so far, uh, say the open awareness. In that space of vastness of awareness, there is less clinging. It's a space of less clinging. Um, In the relaxing of the push and pull that we've been talking about, relaxing the aversion to the unpleasant, the the grasping of the pleasant, Uh, in the release of identification, in this habitual me mining and just there is this, or not self, or not however you're doing, not me, not mine. In any of those modes, Occasionally, uh, we get a sense to some degree or other of time becoming less prominent, less substantial, kind of less uh, solid and in one's face. Um, At first, for a meditator, at first, uh, typically what tends to happen is, as the clinging gets less, the two aspects of time that tend to decrease first are the sense of past and future. Past and future. Uh, And one, they tend to kind of decrease their sense of reality, of substantiality. It almost, people say, they're just kind of, it's just imaginings, they're not really real. And one is left with a sense of now, nowness, present moment. Past and future begin to fade a little bit in their sense of reality and and we're left with now. But uh, it is also possible that even the sense of present is uh, seen through, seen through, and that, again, will depend on how, uh, one of the things it depends on is how much clinging there is. So if there's really, really, really a letting go of clinging, sometimes a person, in different ways the experience can be different uh, from meditation, actually has a sense of even the present isn't something real, doesn't have that inherent existence. I would say that in the <coughs> unfolding of, of meditation, deep deep practice, actually, we n- we need to get to that point where the now also is seen through. We, that's actually uh, quite an important uh, aspect of practice, quite an important place in practice. And all this raises the question, even if we're just getting a glimpse of how the time sense is less prominent at times, more prominent, depend on clinging. All of that raises the question: Is time? a dependent arising. We usually think dependent arising is happening in time. That's the usual way it gets explained, and at one level that's true. It begins, you know, even at whatever level of practice, begin to get a, a, a suspicion that maybe time sense is also a dependent arising and not inherently existing. So let's go into this a little bit. This, this, before I get into that, you know, this, um, it's a natural progression, so probably for everyone, to let go of past and future first, and then have a feeling like, it's always now, it's always now, or uh, only the now really exists, that's the only thing that you can say really exists, or a sense of kind of an endless now, is endlessly now, and that's a, again, it's a, it's a lovely opening in meditation, it's a meditative perception, very important. Uh, and this is to be explored, so it's not to be brushed over. It's really, really there's quite a lot of just in that, letting go of the past and future and having a sense of a kind of always nowness, an um, endlessly open now. Uh, very much to be explored, and there's a great deal of freedom from that level. But, uh, as usual, careful that we are reifying something, giving it inherent existence, or even perhaps kind of eternalizing a sense of now. I'm making a a kind of now that's eternal in some way so what would it be to try also at some point or realize also you know it's never now (laughs) you could say it's always now it's perhaps you could say deeper to say it's never now it's never now really Uh, in a way there's not enough time for it to be now (laughs) the present also is empty past is empty, I'm going to go into this more, past, future, present also is empty. Uh, That, when one sees it in meditation, is a deeper level of freedom, a deeper sense of release than just the past and the future being empty. So let's go into this a little bit. Remember we talked about the three sides, of it, oh, three sides of a stick, two sides of a stick and the middle of a stick, the left and the right and the, and the centre. And we said that uh, left, right, centre are kind of mutually dependent. They lack inherent existence. Past, present, future, same. Same. They are concepts that uh, lack any independent existence. The moment we have a sense of past, it implies the others. The moment we have a sense of future, implies the others. The moment we have a sense of present, Present as a concept, as a felt sense, does not, cannot stand independent of uh, past and future. The center cannot mean anything without concepts of left and right, even if we're not actually thinking now. So we might say, well, I'm seeing in meditation, I have this sense in meditation as, as I begin to deepen my meditation, that the past and futures are illusions. But if the center of the state depends on the left and the right and the present depends on the past and the future, then again, the present is depending on illusion, resting on something empty, dependent on something empty. The present only means the present uh, almost by definition as something between past and future. Present means present means that which is between past and future. So we can go into this a little bit more rigorously or perhaps ho- hopefully convincingly. it depends. Pe- people th- with time, it's so interesting, uh, like many, many uh, areas of emptiness practice, in many ways you can approach seeing it's emptiness. So people uh, will find different ways that are more uh, convincing and helpful for, for, for them. And say, this present moment, this present moment that I either have a sense of in, in this moment or I postulate, <clears throat> is it one or many, really? Uh, remember this one or many analysis we did? Bring it in not just with spatial existence, but with temporal existence, time. Is it one or many? You say, well, this moment, uh, let's, let's say it's one. Okay. If it's one, it could either uh, be divisible into a beginning, middle, and end, or not. If it has a beginning, middle, end, this moment, then it's actually three moments, it's not one. Because when time is at the beginning, it's not at the end. Can't be. When it's at the end, it's not at the beginning. Right? The time little, you know, thing is at the beginning of the moment or or at the end of the moment. Right? Okay, so say it's three. Okay, so it's three. So I take the beginning moment. and Same again, same again. I cannot find a one. I cannot find an inherent one, a real one there. So I say, all right, so it's many. Fine, it's many. But I cannot be a real many if I can't find a real one. (laughs) (laughs) How how was that again? (laughs) 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 Let's, um... I'll go through it again, <laughs> but again, if we could have questions afterwards, okay. it might... So, I don't know, should I do it again now, or should, I, should we wait till later? Oh, yeah. whatever. Whatever. Well, whatever. If we say now, we well, can't do it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, do, let's do it at the end, okay? These, as I said, the talks, they're for repeated listening. When you get the CD or whatever, you just rewind it and listen again. Even when you've got it, you're going to need to reflect on it and get it so it's portable, and you can just plug it into your meditation and... If, if it's your thing, if it turns out to be your thing, incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful, okay? I also had a lot of uh, doubt about this and resistance to this for many years, and I'm not saying it has to work for you, but uh, it can, it really, really can. Um, and the, the important thing is is that it's a practice. <clears throat> Uh, it's a practice. So, in relation to that one, and I went through it quite quickly there, the same when we did it last time with spatial things. A person can say, last year someone said, well, okay, well, can't we just say there are no moments then? There are no moments. It's not that time, doesn't it? It's just there are no moments. Um, but this is just playing with language, because um, what could we say? There are, I don't know what, portions of time that we feel, we sense, we feel that we experience, portions of time uh, that we say, some are happening now in existence and others are not happening now, they're not in existence, and if they're not in existence there's two ways that they can be not in existence, either they're gone, they're past, or they're not yet to be, they're future. So I might uh, just change the language a little bit, but basically back really to the same concept of moments, portions of time, just playing with the language. Language is not the problem. <clears throat> That's not what Nagarjuna was getting at uh, in all his um, reasonings on emptiness. There's not a point in saying language is the problem. If only human beings could exist without language, would be okay. That's actually not what's being said. And it's something more deep in our very intuitive sense of things as having inherent existence. <coughs> but... As I say, it's possible that one reflects on this, reaches a point of conviction, and then is able to really plug it in and practice. And that's the the key thing, practice, 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 and bringing it in ways that can be incredibly powerful. And one sees the moment cannot have any inherent existence. Time cannot have any inherent existence. You could say for any, 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 anything to be, you could say, well, it needs a time to be in. And there isn't that. There isn't that really. So if we go back, remember last night I was talking about three reasons that Gampopa, uh, this Tibetan teacher from the 11th century, gave for why awareness could have no inherent existence. This is the last one. This is the kind of final uh, nail in the coffin of the inherent existence of awareness. Very, very powerful uh, to actually um, contemplate uh, this moment of awareness in this way. unfindability knowing and knowing time yes unfindability knowing and known and time yeah good unfindability what? knowing and known and and, and emptiness of time emptiness of this moment Um, there's another reasoning and I I just want to throw it out and again it's probably difficult to grasp in one go but I just want to put it out so you you have it Um, in the first verse of Nagarjuna's Mula Madhyamaka He it says Things do not arise from self, they do not arise from other, they do not arise from both self and other, or neither. And so this moment, this moment, it cannot arise from itself. This moment can't arise from itself. Because arising has no meaning for something that already exists. It's already in existence can't arise from itself it's going to go through all the possibilities of arising for th- for this moment all the possibilities first one arising from itself cannot be second one arising from something other it can't this moment can't arise from a future moment can't arise from something in the present uh, some other factor or force or energy in the present moment. Um, because actually, whatever else I find in the present moment is just the present moment, right? It's itself, again. You see? If if I'm looking for something in the present moment that gives rise to this moment, it's, all, um, it's the same as the first one, it's still the present moment. I say, well, it's the past moment that gives rise to the present moment. Something other, the past moment, gives rise to the present moment. But past, almost by definition, is that which has disappeared. It's past. It's gone. It's disappeared. How can something that's disappeared give rise to something else? It's gone. There's no contact between past and present, really, if I look closely at it. I could say uh, Somehow the past and present kind of overlap in some region that allows an influence of the past to kind of create the present moment and you've kind of got these two circles overlapping, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Is that really possible? The p- past overlaps into the present, really? Or you could say, well, there's a point of contact and then that becomes another moment, that point of contact. You can see where I'm going. <laughs> that becomes another one. That has to have a beginning and an end. Whoops, I've now got, maybe it has a middle too, I've now got three moments in the middle there. And they're getting smaller. But that present moment, the so-called present moment, is now three moments removed from the past moment. And they have to have beginning moments. So it's nine, etc., <laughs> etc. Et Down to an unfindable moment, an infinite mo- number of moments away from the present Past and present cannot have actually any contact. Without contact, how can it be? How can it give rise to the present? If something is gone, how can it give rise to the present? So the other two options, N- and Naga- what Nagarjuna is doing is laying out all the possible options for arising. Either something arises from self or other, or both or neither. Both just uh, repeats the mistakes of the first two. So it's both self and other, just repeats them. Neither means uh, things arise causelessly, without causes and conditions. But we see somehow uh, this moment clearly depends on others preceding it. It's just that that dependency is an inherently existing dependency. You so the implication is the present moment lacks inherent existence. Because it doesn't have inherent existing arising. I just throw it out again if if you can get into this in fact they can be very very powerful and very quick actually not necessarily uh, big kind of lugubrious uh, machinations in meditation there's a passage in in Nagarjuna's uh majamakar, which is this sort of seminal text on emptiness, uh, was a few hundred years after the Buddha's death, he says the same things in in a different roundabout way. He says something like, if, for example, the present inherently depended on the past and future, it would actually have to exist in the past and the future, because for one thing to depend on another, uh, the two have to meet, they actually have to meet. Uh, One must somehow emerge from the other uh, as its basis. Otherwise, otherwise, if that wasn't the case, when the time on which the present depends existed, when the past, let's say, or the future, if you're saying the present depends on the past, when that existed, the thing, uh, the thing doesn't exist, the present doesn't exist. Or, at the time when the present exists, uh, that on which it depends, the past doesn't exist. Same thing in different words. Not, not easy, but actually penetrable and, and uh, doable in meditation. So I just wanted to throw that out. Um, let's go into this more, uh, what I was calling more the phenomenological mode, not so much in terms of reasoning, but in terms of what do I see when I go deep in the quietness of meditation. I'm actually looking at how this sense of dukkha and experience is operating. Three, three <laughs> three <laughs> facets of our experience uh, that are intuitive and felt to be inherent existence existent self, thing, and time. any moment of experience has some degree of that triangle sense operating. the self, the thing and the time in which it happens, okay? Now when I say self, again I mean the whole spectrum of self. I don't just mean the big, gross personality self of, of Papancha and all that, I'm sure of that, definitely, but even just the subtlest, barest sense of, of self. What you have is a self knowing something in a moment, in a sense of time. Self things and time, they go together. Now we've already said at the beginning that time, that sense of time, is given substance uh, when we give substance to things. In other words, when this cueing is important, what I'm going to get to, uh, when whatever it is, when in this moment of meditation I'm giving substance to a thing, the thing is important for the self, the time sense will be given substance. Okay, So the substantiality of the time sense is dependent on... Uh, the, the meaning for us, the impl- implicit felt meaning of things, of an object, of a perception. So, when something, when there is a perception of a thing, anything, anything at all, uh, in a way, we draw in the time sense by kind of implicitly measuring that thing in terms of its past and its present and its future, uh, in relationship to the self. So this thing becomes important in terms of what will it do for me in time? What has it done for me in time? If it's been a good thing, then I cast thing and self forward into a future. Maybe it will continue to be a good thing. If it's been a bad thing, again I cast it. If it's been a good thing, maybe it will get bad, maybe it will disappear. If it's been a bad thing, I hope it disappears in the future. Do, do you understand? It's clinging, grasping, C- aversion. Exactly, cr- but it's implicit actually in the very perception of a thing that we're kind of implicit in the very perception of a thing for a self is the meaning of the the uh, the worried about. That's too strong a word, but the worried about meaning of that thing for the self in time. What? Yeah. So, so there's a kind of conjuring up of the sense of time through uh, the investment of the self. And the self is always invested, even if it's a quiet self, subtle self, is invested in a thing and brings time with that. Because the thing always goes with a sense of measurement, measuring that thing over time. And the self too. We have a sense of self continuing in time. How will it be for me in time, in the future? It was this way in the past. So, thing belief builds time belief. Self belief also gives substance to things. The more self belief I have in that moment, the more I'm injecting an investment into thing, perception, experience, object, thing, all the same, and into time that could be extremely gross extremely frantic and agonized it could be very very subtle extremely subtle but somehow this is bound up with the perceptual process even if it's very subtle it's bound up with the, with the perce- any time there is a sense of self a sense of present moment and a sense of a thing that's known by that self uh, that triangle this, this is going on in perception. What can I get? What will I get? What I, do I hope I don't get? Not as thoughts necessarily, as sort of uh, subtly woven into, into the perception. What does it mean for me? But the dependency, like always, works the other way too. <clears throat> Self-belief guess what? Needs time belief. Self. A view of a self, a sense of a self, needs a sense of time and a belief in time. Who am I if there is only a present moment and that's nothing? It's ungraspable. Who do I become? There's nothing graspable of a present moment. Who am I then? This is a meditative question. It's a meditative So All all this, I'm pointing to meditation. So you can get this sense, it's like there's nothing actually findable here. What does that do for the self-sense? Self-sense gets built, And moving, just jumping to a gross level for a second, my story, my mother's story, my grandmother's story, all of that goes into my narrative, uh, and what will happen to me in time. And the self-sense gains solidity by stretching out story and worry and projection into future and time, at a gross level, at a very subtle level? Who will I be when I drop that sense of continuity past future and, and I see that the present is ungraspable? Who am I then? And if the present is ungraspable, if there's actually no... if time sense isn't really real, what then is the significance of things if they don't last, if they're, if they're not really something in time? So, things, uh, we've said already, are drawn out and stand out dependent on selfing. Again, the more self there is, the more prominent this thing is, the more important this thing is, and the more it stands out to perception. I'm talking about how perception is fabricated. And uh, things also need time belief for their continuation. Otherwise, why would we worry about things, this thing? All these three uh... it's like a tripod uh, <laughs> A tripod <laughs> a tripod, that's no, actually a dipod <laughs> bipod, whatever you call it it's a tripod what's sitting on top of the tripod? Dukka. Dukka. actually you could say this. this is how our experience gets built mutually dependent arising mutually built self, things, time Self, however subtle. Thing, <coughs> however subtle. Even a sense of no thing. Time, however subtle. Just the barest sense of a present moment now. All this can be very gross. Big past, future, story. Big self, story, big thing, deal. Or very, very subtle. Tripod. Mutually dependent rising. And in the mutual dependent rising means mutually empty. None of them Not the self-sense, not the sense of time, a present moment, not the sense of a thing, an object. None of them can stand alone. They rely, like three sticks, in a tripod, leaning on each other. They rely on each other for their support. They're not inherently existent. They cannot exist by themselves. Does this make sense? Yeah? So again, this is me- meditation, meditation, meditation. What happens when I bring that in to meditation, and I really begin teasing this, I can pull, pull at any one of these three legs. I can, uh, When things are mutually dependent, it opens up the possibilities for meditation. I can go this way, I could pull at this leg, I could pull at that leg. So what can I see in meditation? When the self-sense gets less, for whatever reason, maybe I'm practicing anatta, whatever, the thing-sense gets less, we've already said this, the perception begins to fade, etc. And also the time-sense gets less, to whatever degree. It's a spectrum like everything else. Did you Going via the other leg, what happens when the push-pull gets less? Uh, same deal, and the self-sense gets less, time also, etc. What happens if I find a way to... Uh, let go, for instance, just in the belief in past and future, and I just kind of snip them off. I just cut them off. What happens to experience? What happens to the sense of self? What happens to the sense of thing? And I actually get closer and closer and closer down to this ungraphable present. Or, through whatever reason, I may have had a, a glimpse that becomes a conviction in time being empty, and then I just remind myself of the emptiness of time. I'm pulling at the other tripod at the other uh, leg of the tripod. you understand? Meditation. (coughs) So, where there's a sense of self, no matter how light that sense of self, no matter how refined, no matter how subtle, that sense of self has with it an investment it's an investment uh, there's what will it be for me how will it be for me how is it for me how will it be for me and that investment comes from a sense of self but it also comes from the sense of thing so let's talk let's talk about this a little bit more how these how these are tied talk about um delusion avidya or ignorance what the Buddha calls delusion or ignorance avidya it says it's the root of dependent arising I used, I can't remember when it was, but I was talking about thinking, and saying perhaps uh, the deeper problem is not so much thinking, but conceiving. Do you remember I said this a while ago? Conceiving rather than thinking, because you can experience no thought in meditation, it doesn't mean that one has finished the path or arrived at anything, uh, you know, transcendently deep in, in terms of one's understanding of emptiness. But conceiving means something slightly different. If I have a thing in the present for consciousness, anything, an inner thing, an outer thing, anything, I would say that wrapped up in that sense or perception of a thing is the concept, the conceiving of not that thing. In other words, um this goes a little bit back to the duality thing we were talking about. This thing has its meaning in relation to what is not that thing. Rather, for something that's, let's say, some pleasantness in meditation exists, and that's my perception. Right now there's some stillness, there's some calm. That thing, my perception of that thing, wrapped up in that perception, is the concept of not that thing, perhaps not that thing in the future. It may go. right. Uh, That's kind of Again, it could be conscious or it's implicitly wrapped up in in the perception. That conception of thing goes with the conception of not that thing in the future. So time is implicitly hidden, wrapped up, woven into the perception of a thing. Does it make sense? Um, And that because of that, and because the self has investment, the the future sense begins uh, gaining significance. It's it's wrapped up without us realizing it in the perception of a thing as a hidden concept, and it gains significance dependent on the belief in it and the investment, dependent on the delusion. So I say conceiving in that sense and delusion actually go together. When I believe a thing is really this thing, then there's really not that thing, and it's wrapped up with... Time sense and, and everything else. Do you understand? Um, Can you give a concrete example? Yeah. Well, let's, let's say I have stillness in meditation, and I like it, and maybe I'm not even particularly used to it, uh, and I and I want I wrapped up in that. I may re- I may have a thought, a conscious thought. Um, what will ha- I hope this lasts? I hope it doesn't vanish, Um, but even if I don't, um, implicit in a thing is the idea of not that thing. And if there's an investment, uh, that idea of not that thing, possibly not that thing in the future, possibly that thing vanishing, that sense of future is wrapped up in that. It's wrapped up. Present thing as a perception, wrapped up in that is the conception of future and possible not that thing. And as a conception, they're woven again. That's part of, that's part of fundamental delusion. And it's wrapped, that's what I'm saying, fundamental delusion wrapped up in perception. It's a much deeper problem than, say, language or thinking. It's very, very deeply woven in. Well, when you say investment, you're saying attachment. Yes. And, and, but, yes, basically. It's a subtle level, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so, the time sense, in all these ways, is actually wrapped up and dependent on the perception of things. We're not saying that time is non-existent, we're just saying that it's not inherently existent. Again, all these things are woven together, they all arise together. Appearances, empty appearances, arise together, dependent on each other. If time-sense is dependent on thing-sense, thing, perception, experience, object, whichever word we use, things being empty, again, we have time resting on... leaning on something empty, leaning on a vacuum. What about consciousness? Consciousness, knowing, is also dependent on time. To know, there needs to be a known, but there also needs to be a present moment, the sense of the present moment in which knowing is happening. We've already said in different ways the present moment is actually dependent on the past and future, it's dependent on the thing, on the object, on the perception, so actually the present is, uh, is uh, empty, in which case consciousness is leaning on something empty too. If time is empty, production, abiding, ceasing are empty, arising, staying, Ending are empty. In uh, the Vimalakirti Sutta, one of the um, very famous Mahayana Sutta, it says, uh, Phenomena do not arise, they do not abide, Mm -hmm. they do not cease. And you get that kind of statement many times in Prajna Paramita text. It means ultimately speaking. Time is empty, so you can't really say that really things abide, arise and cease. About actually, something Nick asked way, way back when we were talking about the three characteristics: uh, is impermanence ultimately true? It can't be ultimately true, for impermanence to be ultimately true, impermanence relies on a thing to be impermanent and a time to be impermanent in. If neither thing is really real nor time is really real, impermanence also cannot be really real. Conventionally, it's true. Convention is very important. I mean, Convention is a very important insight, and it's a stepping stone. Ultimately speaking, it's not true. So consciousness too is empty, awareness too is empty, but it's wrapped up with time. It's wrapped up. It's wo- all these things are woven together. So I know this is difficult, but I uh, just go back to what I said. I hope you can get a sense of what I'm talking about, it's not abstract, it's really for meditative use, not abstract, and there is, if one can find eventually, whatever that is, a way to use this stuff in meditation, it's, um, uh, you know, a real beauty opens up with this, a real beauty, I'm not talking about something dry or intellectual. Let's revisit those first few links of dependent origination a, b- a bit more subtly. Do you remember, I can't remember if it was in a question answer period, and it t- talks about, there's one sutta, <clears throat> actually there's a couple of suttas, where it's actually ten links of dependent origination are given, and not twelve. And it actually stops, it goes back, and it ends at consciousness, and it doesn't go into sankharas and ignorance. Do you, do you remember anyone saying that? Okay. The, the Buddha, there's at least two instances. The Buddha, when he gives his most complete description of his awakening realization, says, he, he kept asking questions. What does this depend on? And then getting an answer. what does that depend on? And tracing the wheel of dependent origination back, coming to Nama Rupa, and saying, what does Nama Rupa, the fourth link, classically the fourth, fourth link, and saying, what does Nama Rupa depend on? And then he says, then I realise it depends on consciousness, it depends on knowing. And he said, and then he asks himself, what does knowing depend on? What does consciousness depend on? And he says, it depends on nama rupa. He said that was the moment of awakening, realising the mutuality, uh, the mutual dependency, and the implicit mutual emptiness of consciousness and nama rupa. Nama rupa, if we unpack it, uh, rupa forms and perception forms, but. Uh, nama is, is, for our purposes here, the important part is perception, vedana, attention, intention, and contact. Perception, vedana, attention, intention, contact. That makes up, makes up the processes of the perceiving mind, you could say. The Buddha is saying, consciousness is dependent on those, those are dependent on Consciousness. That was the moment of awakening. Other instances too, when it gets described as a ten-link chain, I wonder if that was the original presentation, and then afterwards he sort of added uh, a couple more to sort of fill it out and explain where, it, what was it really resting on, in a sense. So let's let's unpick this a little bit. Attention. Take one of those aspects. Attention. A couple of people have reported this feeling like, or gaining a glimpse of, the mind in its movement of paying attention to one thing, perception, object, experience, or another thing, perception, object, experience. And actually, the push-pull of attention almost indistinguishable from the push-pull of craving and grasping. It's almost as if the mind in paying attention to something goes like this. As if there's a kind of calip, it's kind of doing pushing that away and grasping at this. It's quite subtle, but can be caught. There's actually implicit in our process of attention is a kind of push pull. Are you guys okay? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Bill, do you want to chair? You're okay. Do you want the chair? Okay. What's attention? How would we define attention? You could say attention is consciousness plus intention. Right? It's directed knowing. It's di- consciousness directed at this, directed at that, with the intention to keep either we're aware of that intention or not. But you could say that's what attention is. So whether or not one sees that or even agrees that there's this kind of push-pull involved in paying attention, whether or not, there's something else that we can point to. We've already said objects, perceptions, things, uh, experiences, depend on push and pull. We've seen that and we talked about fading, etc. Push and pull depends on object. Mutual dependent arising again. Object depends on push and pull. Push and pull depends on object, right? We've already gone into this in terms of reaction and vedna, grasping and thing. <laughs> do I? Need, do we need to go into that again? No. Is it? Do we need more air in here? That no, was yesterday. Yesterday and and another talk I think last week. Yeah. I'm going to say something further and perhaps a bit. You could say a bit more subtle, I don't know. <clears throat> a sense of an object, an object for consciousness, depends on attention. It's what makes an object an object for consciousness is my paying attention to Again, it could be deliberate or non-deliberate, but the mind moves in its kind of <clears throat> seizing on something as attention. A te- ob- an object for consciousness depends on attention. What does attention need to be attention? An object. I cannot have attention to something without an object for which it is attending, right? Attention needs to land on something, hold something, even for a millisecond, right? Objects and attention, mutually dependent, mutually dependent. Attention needs an object, objects need attention to be that, to be that for consciousness. If I have a sense of this moment, this present moment, and that can seem like this is the only thing that's real, this moment, but this moment for consciousness, in a way it's delineated, uh, so to speak, it's um, yeah, delineated by perception. In other words, how I get a sense of this moment is a sense of some thing experienced in this moment. That's what gives me a sense of this moment. Yeah. This moment. So this moment can say it's delineated by perception. We could say delineated by what is known. Again, known. It's a known because I know something. This is known in the moment. In the as, and I now have a sense of a moment of that known. Yeah. So again, we can we can find all these mutual dependencies here. Uh, this moment then, which means time, time in its most most bare sense. This moment is actually then dependent on knowing. Time is dependent on consciousness. This moment is dependent on knowing. Knowing means consciousness. Time is dependent on consciousness. Knowing depends on time, this moment. Same for attention, like we just said. Attention delineates a moment. A moment is delineated uh, for attention. Attention needs a moment. Same thing as saying it needs an experience. When things are mutually dependent, it means they're mutually empty. You cannot have mutual dependence without that implication. And the sense of leaning on emptiness, leaning on a vacuum. Things are leaning. So that's what the meaning of groundless, groundless. Leaning. There's no real support for anything. Let's revisit this word of the Buddha, avidya, and then he added, and perhaps I don't know how it happened, as as the teachings matured and he found himself talking to more people, I don't know, maybe he added the avidya piece later. That's not actually there in the consciousness and nama-rupa thing, where he says, well, why why do we do all that? Well, it's dependent on avidya. So that's the root of it all. What does this mean, avidya? Delusion, ignorance, whatever translation. It has a whole range of meanings. At one level, av- Avidya, a delusion is not being clear about what uh, qualities and actions in life bring suffering and what qualities and actions bring freedom, doing the wrong thing ethically, doing the wrong thing in terms of what I'm developing in my being. Just at that that's one meaning of Avidya. It also means uh, not being aware of impermanence forgetting impermanence yeah it means <coughs> one more more uh, perhaps deeper meaning of it is believing in the self to be something real that's a part of root ignorance but self as i said can be anywhere on that spectrum anywhere on that spectrum, the gross self, the personality self, the story self, the narrative self, the bonkers self, or really, really subtle, just the barest sense of awareness, subject, a knower, no story, no personality, no me, no name, a knower, a self, an object, no matter how subtle, even nothing as an object, subject, an object, time, no matter how bare, just a present moment, uh, believing in that trinity as inherently existent is root delusion that 's the root delusion in that duality of subject and object in that duality it 's almost like there comes a charge in that duality when you have that duality sense of subject it's it 's pregnant with a charge it has a uh, The subject must have some kind of investment. Out of that come what we could say, is a word that have lots of meanings, but we could say out of that then comes the intention to pay attention to something based on this sense of self, belief in self, no matter how subtle, belief in an object, belief in time. Uh, Sankara's so can get translated in many different ways. It has a range of means. I think it's good to allow it that range of meaning. So at one level it means our neuroses, You know what we're bringing from the past in terms of... I keep dragging my uh, you know, neurotic predispositions and stories into the present moment, and that begins to color everything and shape everything, contract everything and shape my perception and the way the self gets built, of course. Um, <clears throat> originally it has actually to do with... The, um, What's it called when, if you're firing a clay pot and you put, uh, uh, you make an impression in, in uh, a mold of an impression and you fire it repeatedly into clay pots, you know, to make that design in, in, the, in the pot. Cast. Cast, yeah, exactly. So uh, that cast or impression, that's the, the kind of meaning of Sankara. And you can do the same with the mind. So it has, It's to do with karma, you know, regardless of past lives and all that. Just The way the mind has impressions is that it carries them into the future carries them into the present moment, brings them in. John's probably been through this with you, right? Yeah, good. So that's one level, that's really important. Uh, but it also has the meaning of fabrications, or I would also add fabricators, f- fashioners, that which uh, forces uh, and movements of the mind that fashion and fabricate what? Experience and dukkha, the whole sense of reality. Out of delusion comes these impulses, intentions, ways of relating, uh, conceiving, etc., perceiving, that fashion, the fabricate. But even though, as you say, uh, the intention to pay attention is a very subtle movement of sankhara. You, can see, you could also find that in Nama Rupa, in our list of five, Perception, Vedana, Attention, Intention and Contact that's why it's almost like a little bit, the Sankharas and the delusion are a little bit, not redundant, but they're sort of included in the the Nama Rupa. Intentions require an object to intend to attend to. I have to believe in that. I have to believe in this object to intend to pay attention to. I have to have uh, a sense of the next moment. I can't have an intention without a sense of the next moment. I intend to do something. Intention has to do with, now and the future, even if it's the most milli-milli-millisecond future, it's an intention. It's implicit in intention. is a sense of the next moment, and a sense of a subject with an investment, to some degree or other. So again, all this mutual mutual emptiness, mutual arising, Time is actually dependent on knowing. It's dependent on the movement of intention and sankharas and investment. It's dependent on time. Is dependent on conceiving conceiving of an object, a thing, in the present moment. And you could say the other way around, consciousness, knowing, is also dependent on object, attention, intentions, time. If I look at the mind, any which way I look at the mind, uh, I cannot find any... uh, any aspect of the mind, no matter how the Buddha or anyone else chops it up, it's attention. It, it, mind is attention plus intention plus this plus that, and all these all these factors. I will find a mutual dependency and mutual emptiness. There's nothing in there that's not empty. We took attention. Attention depends on object. Object depends on attention. Empty. Well, so what about what about delusion? All this depends on illusion. On uh, delusion. Uh, But delusion, too, is a dependent arising. Delusion doesn't exist in the abstract. You can't have abstract delusion. Delusion has to do with what? Delusion exists in the present moment, in relationship to thing, in relationship to all of that. It's actually... delusion ends up being dependent on the other factors, too. What you've got in dependent arising is this web... Of every factor in the web is affecting every other factor, is dependent on every other factor. I cannot find inherently existent delusion either. It's dependent on consciousness, dependent on mind, dependent on perception. So how would I bring all this into practice, or some of this into practice? Uh, we've said about building, um, building platforms, so to speak, digging tunnels and then reaching a point of conviction and then going further. If I reach the point of conviction, through practice, through three characteristics or whatever other practice, objects are empty, they're just a fabricated perception, it's just a perception, it's empty. Then I may begin to add, uh, when I'm resting on that platform, the mind is empty too. The mind is empty too. And I can even do it as the mind as a whole or including all the mental factors, attention, and I can go through them in the meditation and actually see that for the different reasons. And they, too, they, as I've been saying, they're dependent on empty objects, they're leaning on something empty. Staying with that, I could then bring, in. Med- I'm talking about, again, very deep, a very possible uh, uh, meditative investigation. In that, objects empty, mind empty, I bring in time and present moment empty. And this trinity of uh, subject, object, time, see all three from all three all together. I'm I'm, I'm seeing them as empty, and I <coughs> appreciate that may seem uh, completely impossible, but it's really, really not. It's really not. Uh, I I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's not impossible. Uh, and this right from the beginning been. Um, stressing this develop the practice, develop the practice, because on one, as we develop it, we can then go to the next uh, unfoldment, so to speak. That becomes a conviction, goes to the base the next on it, develop, develop, develop. So we get insights, and then those insights, for instance, that perceptions are empty, objects, experiences are empty, that then becomes consolidated through repeating, and that consolidated insight becomes the platform for, for the next level. So this emptiness of time, uh, for a meditator, uh, just throwing this out, um, many, many possible different flavors of it and experience of it. So one can have a sense of there is no time really for anything to be in. One can also have a sense of, uh, it's hard to put it into language, kind of etern- eternity. But that's not, the meaning of that word is not the same as everlasting stretches of time. It means something beyond time, it's not, not that. Or sometimes there's a sense that somehow, in a way, that a person can't really put into words, that somehow all all time is here. All the past and all the future is here, right now. It's all here, somehow. Well, you said there's no now. It's all here, somehow. When, when we get to certain levels of meditation, it's like the, the, the language can't hold the insights, because language is based on notions of time and subject and object, etc., Is that what? Is that before? Um, People have lots... Yeah, I will talk about cessation tomorrow. And partly what I want to say is it's important, but it's also not as important as some people say It's both. Um, So what's important is seeing the emptiness of things. So a person can have... You know, to see this in in any way, in terms of time, is going to be enormously freeing. Someone could have a cessation experience and actually not have that much freedom come out of it, or a so-called cessation experience. So... (coughs) When I, when I try and give maps, you know, and it sounds like this happens in, in this order, I mean, rarely is it, you know, formulaic or linear. It's more what I'm trying to give is a sense of how you could develop practice, as I said, to then consolidate certain insights that come up that then lead you to a next level, etc. But no, no one's practice unfolds in a completely formulaic way. Um, and other times, in, in terms of moving towards a station, it's like the whole structure fades. Perception fades, time fades, self fades. And that that fading movement is on the way to cessation. But I wouldn't make too much of a deal of the cessation. It's more like, what does the fading mean about the emptiness and independent arising? That's the thing that frees the understanding. So this um, (coughs) quote that I gave yesterday from Ajahn Mahabua, the Thai forest master, and he said, uh, when he was walking meditation, that this realization came, this voice came. Whenever there's a center, to the knowing, there's dukkha. So when I said that could be interpreted a lot of different levels, a center in the self, I am knowing, this is my knowing, my consciousness, but also uh, a center in time, in the present, a center in space. Remember, space is just a perception. This, uh, can also do not one, not many on space. No, no centre there, no centre in mental factors. The Knowing is actually not separate from empty perceptions. It's not separate from empty perceptions. To have a, cent- we have a sense of a centre of knowing as something that's somehow separate, it's actually not separate from what is empty. So when I... Again, if I fill out the aspect from last night's talk, it's like, is, does awareness have inherent existence? All this points to no, it doesn't. All these ways of seeing that it doesn't. I realize that actually I cannot separate consciousness, awareness, whatever I want to call it, mind, from attention, from intention, from perception, from object, from feeling, from sankharas, from past, present, future. I cannot separate any of that. I can't find a dividing line. You say things are interdependent, but in a way they're more than that. They're interpenetrating. Interpenetrating. They're inseparable. <clears throat> There's a, um, there was a, a, a great, great um, Tibetan teacher who died in 1912 called Mipam Rinpoche uh, from the Nyingma tradition, a uh, very great scholar and uh, yogi meditator. And he's talking about dependent arising and the subtlety of it. And so, when we first hear about dependent arising, it it sounds like these are separate things, and this thing is dependent on that thing, and it's something else. He says, those who believe in substantial reality, in inherent existence, may, when something is produced from a cause other than itself, believe that this is a case of dependent origination. They may think like this, but they misunderstand. To say that something is produced by something else suggests a relationship of dependence in the ordinary sense of the word. But the meaning of dependent origination is more subtle than this. So this framework that the Buddha threw out, I think it was a question-answer period, said, at first it seems like you've got twelve different things. It's actually not that. You can start with that. The more you get into it, you realize, you see, it's not actually twelve different links. They're inseparable, they're mutually dependent, they are empty. And that is uh, getting, it, in a way, at the more subtle and, and more full meaning of dependent <coughs> arising. As I said, I can't remember when. Uh, that, too, would give more of a fullness to the meaning of the mind being unfindable, then, as well. Because unfindable as a separate entity, or consciousness, or awareness being unfindable, the first of Gunpowder's reasonings. Do you remember, I can't remember when it was, and, uh, I was telling you the story of when Ananda said to the Buddha, "I think I understand dependent arising now," and the, and the Buddha said, "Hold on, it's it, you know don't say that yet. Don't say that. It's really really deep. It's pointing to something that the uh, it it goes kind of almost beyond itself. It goes beyond the very concepts that make it up." It's not linear. It's not this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And it's also, when we really go into it, it's not even a process happening in time. It's that time is dependently arisen. At one level it is a linear process, and at one level it is a process happening in time. It's important to see that and work with it at that level. When you really get into it, it's actually uh, something beyond that. So it can seem with all this kind of mutual dependency, and this depends on this, and that also depends on the other thing, and, and everything. Like, it can seem like with all that and all those factors, what you've got is a completely unentanglable knot of spaghetti. It can seem that. Uh and, and that therefore it's hopeless. It's a completely hopeless situation. How could I possibly uh do anything with all that? But actually it's the it's the opposite. Um it's that because there's all these strands of spaghetti, so to speak, hanging out, uh, we can pull on this one, or this one. It opens up many options for the way we contemplate things, just like that house of cards analogy, uh, many options for which card we we draw out. So even though it goes, so to speak, beyond concepts, uh, it doesn't mean that It does not function as a uh, tool, as a conceptual tool that takes you beyond concepts. It doesn't mean that contemplate dependent arising, contemplate what we talked about tonight, and then say, well, can't really know anything about anything, nothing kind of makes sense. We can know what we need to know, and that is the dependent arising mutual emptiness of things. That's what we need to know. So this image, I'm not sure if it's a good image or not, but the snake swallowing its own tail, the deep, deep, subtle uh, contemplation of dependent arising is a conceptual tool that eats, eats its own conceptuality. So not uh, for a practitioner to get stuck in reifying even the elements of the Buddha's teaching, the elements of dependent arising. That, that would be uh, not, not quite going far enough not to go to the other extreme and be too sloppy and say whatever, it's all one or or some other, uh, something that's too useless. Using these concepts in a way that goes beyond concepts. That's what partly what's meant by the middle way. (laughs) How are you doing? Yeah. Um... I don't know, you know, I don't know. You seem a little tired. Um, this point, it's, I don't know if you can get a sense, there's something so beautiful that this is pointing to, something so, that when one sees it, it's so uh, touching of the heart at such a profound level. Um, when we start dissecting things this way, it's going back to the beginning of talk, it can sound like I'm giving a description of some kind of microscopic keyhole surgery of something, and it's all very dry and kind of very precise, but there's something that is unravelling there that's uh, incredibly beautiful, and it's pointing to the uh, total emptiness of everything. Everything. That there's nothing outside that emptiness. Nothing that stands outside what is empty, what is mutually dependent, what is groundless. The whole of existence is groundless. And, And there's a a totality in that and, and a beauty in that. And again, what I'm hoping to just give is, is possible tools that a meditator can uh, find their way to snake through this in, in meditation, navigate and and find the way that this begins to unbind and unravel and reveal something. Something really, really beautiful. Okay. Let's sit for a minute.